Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. I first met Chris Clark in 2017. At the time, we were both amateur bloggers with an interest in the Labour Party and left-wing politics. We were both trying to make sense of the changes within the Labour Party, and then although we'd always seen ourselves as fairly radical and of the left, we wanted to understand why we felt so uncomfortable with it all. At the time, Chris was putting together his early ideas that would form his book that we talk about today. His book, The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master, is, in my opinion, the essential read for anyone who wants to understand the key tribal and cultural splits in the British left and where they come from. Doing these podcasts is a learning experience for me. Recording this particular podcast, I learned to always keep the camera rolling, as it were. After I pressed the stop button, I got some great content that must remain, I guess, primarily between me and Chris. But he did say one thing that I'd like to share here. He said that we on the left are very good at understanding how someone's background and their life experiences shape them. We understand how poverty, social exclusion or trauma can lead to challenges later in life, be it finding work or getting a decent education. And this gives us a greater flexibility and understanding, treating people less harshly. We understand that employment or criminality are not just caused by character defects that can be purely punished out of people. But Chris said that too many on the left scold people with different values or opinions. In Chris's words, nothing is more thatcherite than telling someone to educate themselves. It's like telling someone to get on their bike. Their values are not shaped by their background and lived experience. They're simply a manifestation of character defects. Their fecklessness or ignorance, which can be punished out of them if they don't get on their bike. In my view, Chris's ideas and his mantra is that we should all try and be a little bit more understanding towards those who we disagree with. Let's place ourselves in their shoes and once there, try and find some common ground. In my view, his views mean he stepped out of line, out of current political normalcy. The current ways in which the left in particular do politics Chris was fascinating to talk to, and I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did recording it. Here with me today is Chris Clark, author of The Dark Knight and The Puppet Master, The Myths That Destroyed the Labour Party. His book is a searing critique of the myths and narratives 
that have seduced the political left and led it to electoral disaster and bitter division. In my opinion, it's one of the best dissections of left-wing populism around. I'm glad that Chris is on this show to share his ideas. Chris, to start off, could you give our listeners a brief summary of the three key myths that you believe have seduced the left? Yeah, there was. Um, thanks. Thanks very much for having me, Leo. And the the reason that that I wrote the book came from a fr- frustration with um, what would conventionally be called the far left, but a frustration not with um, necessarily all of the policy substance so much as with a whole set of ways of thinking. Um, so the book was an effort to distill uh, distill those ways of thinking and understand what was really frustrating about them. Um, and it focuses on three elements. The first, or three myths, as I call them. The first is the dark knight. That's knight spelt with a K, uh, as in the kind of the evil nemesis, the idea of, it describes the idea of politics as a essentially a struggle between good and evil with the the left wing on the side of good always um and it kind of conceptualizes every policy dispute in those terms uh the second myth is the puppet master which is the idea of um that all problems sort of come from above and are authored by the powerful um so it, it was a, a bit the issue more is with um the idea that our our, our problems are are made by powerful people rather than being chaotic or anarchic or organic. Um, the third myth is the golden era, which is the idea um, of a kind of a, a brilliant socialist past, the kind of Arcadia, which has been kind of uh, destroyed by modernity or by neoliberalism. Uh, um, and it's a kind of a backward looking idea of contemporary politics, which suggests that we're we're kind of moving in the wrong direction on every every point. So those are the three myths. Uh, if I can go back to, I think when we first met, you were you were blogging on these issues, and I was kind of similarly blogging around the Labour Party and the and the trying to get my head around why the party seems to be so toxic in the kind of in the twenty fifteen years onwards. And it seemed to be that actually on politics and on policy, those who I was kind of sitting next to in meetings, um, you know, we were similarly aligned. However, often we were viewed as kind of mortal enemies. And I assume that's what's picked up on by the Dark Knight myth, that those who are on the centre-left, those who might have marginal kind of policy differences are seen as an enemy and and particularly if we didn't like Jeremy Corbyn or we didn't vote for him we were seen as an impediment to a socialist government and therefore we were we were the bad guys and we were somehow evil and there was also a narrative that we were seen as kind of Blairite elites as well so I would have quite Bizarre attacks thrown at me that I was kind of, um, I had the demeanor of a Blairite kind of cabinet member, and then I was kind of, you know, in the CLP meetings because I had my hair neat. I don't know. Um, yeah. And that somehow I was representative of 
of the kind of puppet. And I assume you went through a similar experience. But actually, I was going to, you were going to, I'm going to put pen to paper and try and explain this experience and explain it to people from outside of the Labour Party who don't quite understand the divide within it. Yeah, completely. I mean, when I think about the three myths, all three of them, aside from all the other sort of damage that I believe they do, is they act as dividing lines between the centre and the far left, essentially sort of splitting together a, a potential progressive coalition. Um, in particular, the myth that I call the Dark Knight, that, that kind of the idea of the political spectrum as a moral spectrum, um, basically means that even a relatively small policy divergence, um, you know, a particular question around uh, nationalising particular utility or not nationalising that utility um, becomes a morally charged question, i.e. something which cuts to the quick of who a person who a person is and you know it may it may be a, a difference of small degrees in the first instance but the implication is that because you don't support tuition fees the, the student fees pledge that jeremy corbyn had for example that you um you're coming from a place of a kind of essentially you're you're a closet tory and not only that you're a closet tory but to be a closet tory means to be kind of immoral in a core sense um, so that, to me, explains why the the left in particular, the, the Labour Party in particular, has this uh, terrible ability to magnify small differences into big ones, um, and to be deeply divided. Even though there are the the actual core policy differences, certainly domestically, are often really not that that large. Yeah, I think that's spot on. One thing that kind of has always more stuck with me is, you know, since I became politically aware, you know, probably in my kind of mid-teens, I could grasp that while for me, for example, I would believe that there should be a well-funded state, a robust uh, welfare state and a safety net which helps people pick themselves up, that actually you help uplift those who kind of fall into poverty by having, um, you know, supportive benefits that are you can make a decent living with and you can get additional education, you can um, live in dignity. However, someone on the kind of conservative benches might suggest that actually by having very generous um welfare benefits you might push people into accepting their lot sitting um idly on on benefits and staying out of employment pushing themselves and actually the positive thing positive thing to do would be to get people kind of on their bike by not offering such um generous benefits um and kind of pushing people and that's how you would. That's how it work. I would disagree with that being how that would work. And actually, you know, most people do want to work. And actually, sometimes you trap people in poverty. Um, that's what you do. You trap people. But I do know it comes from a genuine belief in trying to help people and uh, and be supportive. And it comes from a good place. So even though I politically disagree, I as and morally that we both come from the same place 
Um, but I view some people in the labor as not having that, not having that view. Um, is that something that you picked up on? Then actually, those who do policy, they are immoral. You know, they don't have their heart in the right place. Yeah, completely. Completely. I think that that's where the frustration with the real frustration with the the kind of Corbynite um, surge came from is because I didn't feel that it represented a particularly uh, generous type of politics. And actually, I feel more broadly that elements of the the kind of modern progressive left it's not particularly uh, emotionally generous type of politics. It doesn't seek to always to give people the benefit of the doubt um who have different views and thus it doesn't allow for a diversity of opinion really or it allows only for a relatively narrow diversity of opinion um and that was a a core i would say probably actually the the driving frustration with with me with certainly in the early days of corbynism um being kind of in its ascent was the sense of uh, people, a, a culture of giving others the benefit of the doubt, take you know, taking them on their own terms, um, seems to disappear as a way of a way of doing politics, um, and it seems to be very much uh, about making very strident and harsh judgments of other people. The idea that people who voted conservative did so out of a place of naked self-interest um, and didn't care about the poor in society for example I simply don't think stacks up if you've ever spoken to anyone who's voted conservative in their life okay there may be a few people the kind of the Reese Moggs who really do fulfill elements of that stereotype but I don't think it's a true stereotype and I think it's completely destructive obviously firstly from a pragmatic electoral point of view but secondly from a a kind of ethical point of view it 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 is really quite dangerous in my view and it was why um despite actually considering myself to be relatively left-wing and and supporting certainly some of the the more corbynite type policies and domestic stuff i really couldn't get on board with it at all um so yeah i'd completely agree with you there one thing i was um particularly interested in while reading your book was these cultural differences between the pluralist left and the populist left and how we would view our political opponents and you you said about kind of giving uh i would view it as um a certain level of empathy of trying to put yourselves in your the shoes of your political opponents trying to understand how they view politics um, and how they come to their kind of policy ideas through that. Um, and then there's the, the other view, which would just see them as, well, actually, their uh, policies of native impacts, they have purposely done that, they are wicked, they are evil, or clearly just misguided and foolish. Um, what is it about an individual that means that they choose a pluralist approach to politics and a populist approach to politics because you mentioned in your book a little bit about your background um that your father was a senior politician and you saw quite close up how words could be 
twisted how motivations could be portrayed, you know, incorrectly from those who didn't know him, um, etc. So I could very much see how your kind of open-mindedness and wanting to, and your kind of approach to wanting to understand others' political motivations comes from your specific background. Have you noticed any difference between the pluralists that you bumped into in the Labour Party and the populists and um, their background and their personality? Or do you think it's just, you know, what sort of political subculture you fall into in an, into an early age? Uh, that's a fascinating question, and you're right. I have had, uh, I guess, a, a quite an unusual upbringing in that my my dad was a, a minister in the the Labour governments, uh, and that I, um, uh, in a way, some of these myths I didn't really have them available to me. You know, particularly the puppet master, the idea of this kind of um, this cabal of powerful people uh controlling society you know when you've got a ringer from the local newspaper on your doorstep trying to take photos of you leaving the house or something because something's happened in the news it, the idea that this of this powerful cabal slapping everyone's backs and lining their own pockets really doesn't stack up now you might say i would say that wouldn't i um but uh i i came came at it from a place of I, yeah, I suppose some of the easy answers of saying, oh, it's all those bastards at the top, it's those pigs at the trough, that kind of, I didn't, it would have been so hypocritical for me to hold that view, or at least so uh, uh, personally problematic for me to hold that view, that I quite quickly, from my kind of mid-teens onwards, moved away from that and was particularly very, very kind of skeptical of anything that had a, a conspiracy theorist element um or that even i would what i would say that was at the thinner end of the conspiracy theorist wedge the idea of uh powerful elites men in suits in in corridors sort of uh pressing pulling levers in order to advance their own um their own interests that that idea particularly the third the second of my three myths the puppet master i think was um i felt i was quite disabused of that by my particular background um i don't honestly know on that on the question of so, so for a bit of context i yeah i described in the book there there being sort of two camps on the left the populists who essentially are more conventionally described as the far left and pluralists who are kind of but might be described as the moderate left, um, and I described though, and I described pluralism as the central, as a kind of really core trait of my own politics, and I I think of general centre left politics, um, and I think that I wouldn't honestly know how somebody ends up in as one rather than another, and I wouldn't want to make sweeping assertions about that because I'm sure I've been guilty of many of those populist impulses on certain points you know the uh the the kind of the other guys are just bad how could how could someone possibly think that unless they're actually mm. um a bad person uh so i've believed those things at, at points and i probably believed them in some of them in 2015 when um 
when Corbyn came to be Labour leader, and I think it, there was a process of the book of saying, of of trying to think through some of that. You know, my my the rationale for why I didn't like the populism, and me trying to look at holding me up to any populist instincts I had myself, maybe. But um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to say a surefire categorization of why why someone ends up as one, not another. Yeah, my 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 only experience is those who have maybe worked at a kind of a, a sort of senior level within. Um, you know, public sector who've worked in and around politicians closely or, you know, works as a kind of researcher for an MP, those individuals are usually somewhat more, uh, <laughs> more often kind of rejects the puppet master idea because they've seen the, the elites, the leaders up close um, and seen that actually often they're quite flawed Inept but well meaning generally, you know. Actually, one of the things is, uh, I often think conspiracy theories, um, give um, our rulers too much credit that they are somehow kind of absolute geniuses that can pull off, uh, pull off elaborate ruses when often actually they have the same kind of foibles and, and insecurities and, and difficulties as kind of the rest of us. But often, actually, these are individuals who could. You know, often earn maybe more in the private sector, but they have a sense of public duty. Um, and then, if I just could dig that into a little bit more deeper, I would say those who have worked at kind of a sort of senior level in um, in the public sector, or who have worked in Parliament, are often those that the system broadly works for. Yeah, and. I'm not really an expert on what drives people to uh, fall into conspiratorial thinking, but usually if you feel like you are safe and rooted in the society and it broadly functions, um, you're less likely to fall into conspiratorial thinking. So I do think there is sometimes a, a tribal difference and those on the populist left are maybe slightly more countercultural or feel a little bit more left down by let down by the political mainstream they don't think things are kind of functioning as they should for them that's my that's kind of my experience yeah no that's a really that's a really interesting point and i guess that is both a, a sort of argument in favor of pluralist of, of pluralist or certainly anti-puppet master types of politics and against in that those who maybe have that type of opinion might more often have come into contact with how chaotic, uh, you know, uh, the average council or business or Westminster debate is and might, you know, and that's kind of disabused them of some of these simplistic puppet master ideas of the, the great man pulling his levers. There's a a fantastic quote by Douglas J, who um, I don't know the exact quote to hand. Actually, I should have probably had it ready. But it, it, he describes watching. He was an economic advisor to to uh, to Clement Attlee, and he he says uh, that there's this popular image in the media of the the great leader casting edicts, pulling strings, pulling levers, pressing buttons. 
And it, nothing could be further from the truth. Having watched Clement Attlee's early period in government um, from a kind of position as a, a sort of advisor to him. Um, and that's quite a good example of what you're talking about, that he quite he has this this rapid, almost immediate conversion of everything that he thought about politics as an outsider as soon as he was in that circle of actually trying to do it, do anything, um realized that it wasn't as simple as that. And his critique of Yeah, and he he's kind of criticizing that that view and that idea of the almost omnipotent power resides with the prime minister. And that that's, let's remember, at a point when Labour had just won a landslide and had a lot of the wider economic conditions with them in terms of, you, you know, things already being nationalised and um, taxes already being high, this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I do think there's a, there's probably an element that the the closer be, people get to, to power, the more non even in it, power in its most nominal sense, the, the less they believe in power, the more they come to conclude power isn't really there in the way they might have thought. Power is kind of disparate, and particularly in a liberal democracy, it is widely spread through different institutions that kind of work in, work in balance. Yeah. But I still think there is, I still can't help but feel there is something about an individual's psychology that, um, there is a. It takes a certain open-mindedness to be an advisor to Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn, for example, and realise that delivering on the policy pledges that we had in our 2019 manifesto would be quite challenging. And actually, it would come. You know, we would come across just those hurdles that every government would come across and um, those are different motivations, those are different skill sets within the um, civil service, um, backlash in the in the media, um, you know, actual the feasibility of certain things not working out as they were planned, you know, all that kind of messiness to realise that actually this is the nature of politics and it isn't a grand conspiracy um, still, it still needs a certain open-mindedness from the individual to reject those previous beliefs. Now, I can very easily see that if there was a Jeremy Corbyn-led government that struggled to enact some of its key policies or they weren't functioning as they should, the blame would go to a shadowy um, civil service elite who want to stop um a socialist agenda, for example, or there is the um, shadowy media elites who are shaping public opinion to hassle this government and challenge its legitimacy, for example. Um, and that kind of brings me on to another question um, that I had was, how much do you think that these these myths are needed for um, continued kind of um, self-perpetuating cycle. But actually, if, if a certain section of the left don't hold on to these myths, um, it would sort of break apart. So there's sometimes their strength comes from the from these um, these myths that hold them together. 
Uh, yeah, that's a, a really interesting point. And your two quick points before I answer that. Firstly, I think you're completely right about that. Once, once true believers in the puppet master end up in power, I think they find they they realise that um, the power isn't as infinite as they'd imagined, and there is probably two ways that people go, which is they 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 double down or they adapt. And I think even within the Corbyn ascendancy. You know, there was the a kind of increasing McDonnell, McDonnellite pragmatism that was starting to to recognise that kind of stuff, whereas a more of a Corbynite faction that were, you know, really did kind of believe in the the witch hunt and, and this kind of stuff. So I think that that's what starts to happen is people who who aren't absolute core puppet master believers start to to peel off, and on the right, with for example Donald Trump in America, I think you probably sort of start to see the same thing of people who start to get it, hang on a minute, he's got he's the most powerful man in the world and he still can't do this. Maybe it's not as easy. And people who go, oh, it must be a shadowy force that stopped him from building the wall or whatever it is. Um, so that would be the first point is, like, yeah, I think the kind of the, the, the contact with the reality probably causes sensible people for whatever better way of putting it to start peeling off uh secondly just on your your point about um being relatively comfortable i do think that yeah probably people who do take the pluralist view and or certainly the non-puppet master view often yeah sometimes if they're they they might might be people who who have relative kind of high levels of comfort and they don't feel particularly strong grievances hence they're relatively comfortable sometimes with elements of kind of techn technocracy um and less kind of less angry or less willing to believe there's a there's a bad guy in the the scene so i think just wanted to acknowledge that because it's a, a criticism of my argument about it and i think it's probably criticism with a little bit of fairness more than a bit of fairness to it um and yeah, on on yeah, on your main point, I think all three myths are incredibly politically powerful. There's a reason that they exist in the first place, and there's a reason that <clears throat> all forms of politics ultimately rely on these types of stories in one way or another. Um they're they're kind of and, and if you look at great novels, great films um, great television series, a, a large number of them have these sorts of tropes in there, whether it's Lord of the Rings as a kind of good of a good against evil, um, or uh, kind of enemy of the state as a sort of puppet master, or some of the kind of romantic poets harking back to a kind of a golden Arcadian past. But whichever elements of culture you look at, these, these types of stories, they're, they're kind of Good against evil struggle, the the powerful elite watching us, and the 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 glorious past are exceptionally powerful. So I'm not really suggesting that there can be a politics com that is completely without them. Mm. Um, and indeed, I sometimes think they're prob it's probably healthy to to frame things in those ways. There are points when they do need to be in the political toolkit, and you need a bit of a, a bit of populism um, to 
to get people off their seats. But ultimately, I think once you truly believe in those myths or true, you know, you truly believe the other side are immoral um, and that you're fighting against bad people who are motivated, consciously motivated to do bad things, for example, or you genuinely believe that the 1960s, 1950s was a kind of glorious socialism without compromise, then the comfort that you know the the trade off is that you're you're buying into ideas which aren't really true mm. and which will thus cloud your thinking and prevent you actually making things better. So, um, I would agree that they are these myths are important in a way as basic things holding holding together some of the politics that that drives people. Very few people go into political activism of any kind because they're saying, uh, we want things to, we want to embrace the complexity of everything and, uh, and, and tinker, tinker at the sides. Um, but there is a, I think that there is a trade off that ultimately the more you believe in them, the more wrong you kind of are. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's a, a perennial, perennial difficulty, which probably certainly my book isn't going to resolve. Um, but I certainly believe that under under Corbyn and under elements of other left populists, those myths have got carry far far too much weight, and the empirical rational analysis of uh, what might actually be motivating our opponents or what might actually be preventing social change is not really weighed up and thought about properly and. That yeah, essentially the the balance has been got wrong. And this this podcast is was predominantly to kind of look at figures who have stepped out of line politically, stepped out of line with their political tribe, and and stood by kind of what they believe is right, and have suffered uh, negative consequences for doing that. Um, many of whom have been on the kind of receiving end of attacks from populists. And I think the obvious issue with the Dark Knight um, fallacy is that if you believe someone is acting immorally, that they are driven by self-interest and... uh, uh, a hostility and uh, to others and and bigotry, um, or if you fundamentally think that they are evil, actually stopping them, anything goes, and that's quite that's quite an obvious one. I mean, we know what the extreme examples and where that where that leads. You know, it leads to um, putting people up against the wall. Um, that that's obvious. Um, what I find, and I think actually that culture um, explains some of the horrendous trolling that people experience online. You know, the the depths of in which people will go to um, abuse and slander political opponents um, it never fails to shock me. You know, I'm someone with a... Um, uh, I'm kind of a, a potty mouth who has a bit of a short temper, 
that there are certain depths that people go to on the populist right and populist left to criticise their um, political opponents that I just think is, you know, ab- abhorrent. For example, an example would be a new phenomenon in which, um, which I think is deeply unethical, is the use of weaponizing suicide as a um, political um, weapon to say you have led to someone's death or um, which I see often, you know, uh, criticism of Tory MPs saying um, your policies have caused, directly caused this person's suicide, for example, you know, and criticising those those individuals in those terms. Um, I wanted to get your views on a political culture in which um, politicians are attacked in those terms and do you think it comes from this idea of we are on the side of the angels, we are the white knights, and we need to stop these evil dark knights, and therefore anything goes in a battle against good and evil? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, that would be... Um, the, the answer really is a, a simple yes to that <laughs> that question. <laughs> uh, but Yeah, no, I, I, I just... It, it just... I, I, just the just the the swerve emotion of seeing some of the recent attacks on not even, not even political allies, you know, just people sharing screenshots of this is what's been in my um, uh, DMs, for example. Um, in it, it does kind of it does kind of shake me, and I and obviously that is an that is something that kind of gets thrown out into the discourse quite often you know look at these individuals on the this is how the far left treat their political opponents this is how the far right uh, treat their political opponents um often it's anonymous don't know who's behind those accounts um and it's quite fairly easy to say that actually if these individuals got you know they are just shouty oddballs online um if they got political power, oh no, they wouldn't actually treat their political opponents like that. You know, their their tweets don't reflect how they would um, realistically treat their political opponents if they had the, the levers over the police or the armed forces. Um, but putting that obvious issue to one side, one issue that I found slightly harder to um, to express was this fear of the type of politics that a belief in the puppet master could lead to. And trying to have this uh, discussion with left-wing populists and saying, no, actually, if I went through the 2017 manifesto and the 2019 Labour manifesto, it would be filled with policies that I really support that I think are desperately needed. Austerity needs to end. We need to fund mass social housing building, etc, etc. Lots of this. It's really fantastic. Green infrastructure. Yes, let's build. Um, And so they said, why can't you support it? Or why are you nervous about supporting it? And I would often be like, there's a political culture behind it um, that I think is deeply authoritarian. So obviously, it just explains 
one side that is um, authoritarian, but the second side would be the idea of a puppet master and the hostility, for example, towards uh, mainstream journalists and mainstream journalism. Um, I would be deeply concerned if um, attacks on the mainstream media were directed from the government. So, for example, with the messiness, the difficulties that a Corbyn government would find of general administrating the country, uh, trying to deliver its um, policy platform, and, and we both understand the kind of difficulties that just come from governing the country. If it started, if the struggle started, you know, difficult and the polling started to fall, the easy enemy would be the newspapers. And I can see if you think they are acting in bad faith, if you believe that they are pulling the strings, that they are not reflecting the beliefs of their readership, then actually maybe they should be curtailed. Maybe they should be attacked. Maybe regulation should be put in to, in some ways, weaken their influence. That would be an easy... I could see how that trajectory could happen. Secondly, if you believe that the the courts are being used to stop your political agenda, which is the will of the people. If you're thinking the civil service are secretly institutionally conservative, um, maybe a small C or big C, you would want to undermine that, put true socialists within civil service. And that, I think, is deeply authoritarian. You put that together, I feel like I'm on a roll now, but if you put that together, along with an idea of we're on the side of the angels, anyone opposes us who are is wicked, you could put you know, some genuine like left-wingers in the, in the civil service to help deliver your um, policy platform. Um, but if that stops working, wait a minute, maybe they're not left-wing enough. Maybe they don't follow our orders stridently enough. Let's get rid of them. And you can see how it gets, the clique of who are true white knights gets smaller and smaller. And that sense of who's on the outside and how that smaller group to get more and more control and the and basically these ideas that you've expressed in your book in my idea naturally would lead to something profoundly authoritarian if followed through with so if if those didn't have the open-mindedness to change once they saw the fallingness of government yeah i mean i would completely agree with that it it can sound quite sensationalist to to say it and i think it's important to to emphasize that i think belief in these three myths i talk about varies very dramatically by degree from you know true you know 9-11 truthers at one end of the puppet master spectrum right through to people who don't really trust what they see on the bbc because i think it's got a right with bias you know that might be that much much thinner end of the, the wedge so i don't yeah i think there's a i wouldn't want to go into say into implying that the natural end point of corbynism had he somehow won an election would have been their 
this sort of Stalin type regime, but there is certainly, I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying, by the way, but would you, would you expect to see some undermining of the, the norms, the democratic norms that kind of guide our system? For example, the idea that we shouldn't have a political, political you know, Ralph Miliband's idea of that, um, the civil service upholds um, kind of conservatism and the idea is you should have true socialists um, in the uh, in the civil service because there's no idea no uh, political neutrality is just cover for conservatism or the idea that and those the populist ideas that we see on the right um, very much as Boris Johnson that um, you know uh, the enemy of the human rights judges, and also it would be framed in a completely different way under Jeremy Corbyn. It'd be kind of right-wing campaigners and their lawyer friends stopping up um, our policies. But do you think that same idea is reflected in some of Boris Johnson's um, kind of rhetoric? Um, do you think that even though it would obviously, I think the strength of our state would prevent it from happening to leading to some sort of insane dictatorship. And I think there's a lot of, you know, sensible and rational people within the Corbynite movement who would prevent it from ever happening. Um, but do you think some of those kind of democratic norms would be eroded? Also, do you think a culture would develop hostility and a greater, a greater hostility towards the mainstream media would develop? with someone like that at the helm. I think Trump has just turbocharged populism and hostility towards government institutions, civil service, mainstream media and in America. He might have not been able to bring about fascism, but he did help. He's helped kind of plough the field and lay the seeds for populist rhetoric to be successful later on. And do you think if there was a Jeremy Corbyn premiership, that actually the seeds of kind of further kind of populism and undermining of democratic institutions could have been the Or am I just being a, a strange fear manga? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think you're being a strange fear monger, Leo. And, and I... Um, I think on the Trump slash Brexit right, you get a kind of, uh, they believe equally strongly in these three myths, um, whether it's the, the Republican Party talking about rhinos, Republicans in name only, who are kind of enemies within um, and using that kind of Dark Knight approach, whether it's... Uh, the Brexit obsession with the the puppet master saboteurs in the the kind of House of Lords or whatever it is, um, controlling the controlling politics and stopping the will of the people, um, or whether it's in kind of uh, Helesian recollections of the past in which Britain was this buccaneering state and that we can somehow go back there. There's almost a, a perfect mirror image of that, and I suspect that. You know, had we had a, a Corbyn government, it would have been relatively similar to, uh, in in terms of its approach to some of those media democratic norms, etc., to how the the Brexit right has behaved in government or that kind of thing of of a kind of uh, 
um, eroding of those institutions, um, but probably not. I don't think we would be living in Stalinist Russia, <laughs> but I do. I do think that it would have it has that similarly corrosive effect. Like um, a classic on, big, yeah. um, Boris Johnson just kicking out the the remainers in his party to yeah. arbitrarily. I could um, imagine that the the levers um, in turn in the Labour Party and the mechanism would be shaped to make it far more easier for small number members to expel uh, political critics of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, yeah. you know, the similar kind of our enemies should be removed, which is clearly, you know, clearly anti-pluralist. Um, yeah. And uh, your book goes to quite strong lengths explaining the difficulties that for an old school kind of socialist agenda to be brought about in one nation in a globalised world. And I think a classic frustration um, which I share as someone who's no, just as I said on the previous podcast, once a centrist dad without kids, um, is that it is very difficult um, to tax the new 1% because the embody smooth across borders. Um, that ability for us to tax corp- vast corporations in a way that would be, um, I think, ethical, but also actually to. Um, really build our tax base would be difficult because they can move over to the Cayman Islands and, and base themselves there. That's the, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, mainstream political figures who think this is an issue and are trying to find policy levers to uh, tackle it. And m- my fear would be that, um, you know, tackling something about tackling um, uh kind of vast wealth would be very difficult. So, you know, a populist agenda was saying that actually we don't need to raise taxes for middle incomes. We could only, we can just tax 1% might actually fall down um, once we're in government. Um, similarly, an idea of tackling climate change is just need to tackle the 1% and the huge oil companies. Well, actually, it's our usage um, of fossil fuels that mean these companies that play vast and, con- and continue to invest in fossil fuels. So, I think often, and your book mentions this, to look for to look for easy answers. That it's um, it just it'd be straightforward to tackle these huge issues um, in a globalized world. And I guess a fear would be would be if a left wing government came in and and found it quite difficult, then they would fall back on the safety net of these myths. I assume that's that's a thread that kind of runs through your book. Yeah, I think that the the kind of overall it's easy for the book to be looked at as making, I guess, a fairly a, a fairly obvious and and slightly kind of lame argument of can't we all be a bit nicer to each other. Um and let's stop uh <laughs> being horribly abusive to each other and believing in crazy conspiracy theories and everyone goes yeah of course um uh and it is saying that to to a degree but it it is also that 
there is an element of all of these big political questions are really looking in the cold hard light of day at the the policy realities, the electoral realities, um, the difficulties of genuinely engaging with the media and of understanding where the media is coming from, um, which these myths completely prevent you from doing. They create massive blind spots and cul-de-sacs and a very obvious, very small electoral cul-de-sac for example, being the myth of the non-voter, which I remember when Corbyn coming in, uh, this this idea being a kind of it's is fueled by a sort of puppet master idea that we have an elite politics which only refers to elites, and there's this this great reservoir of disenfranchised left wingers who don't vote because the system does it isn't left wing enough for them, and it's controlled by powerful people. And once you democratise that, you'll you're suddenly kind of un unpop the cork um and and that will then those non-voters will come rushing out to vote for um vote for socialism and that doesn't correspond to anything that rational rational uh analysis tells us about what non-voters think how they've traditionally behaved how easy they are to mobilize but because it the the, the kind of dark, dark night myth enables you to to never really face up to that that question so there's yes part of some of the arguments in the book are about saying um let's all be a bit nice to each other but some of them are also about saying if you're actually serious about the political change and progressive political change then you do need to look quite hard at the really difficult questions that exist around the sorts of things you've discussed around capital flight for example why was it easier to enact a sort of socialism in one country type thing during the 1950s than it is now. Well, there's a myriad reasons. Um, and that's not to say you should give up on the idea of improving economic quality, but it's saying, let's actually look at what at what's changed, what's different, what can be, um, what the real solutions might look like right now. But these myths completely defer all of these hard questions, I think. Um, and I think that's as big an element as the kind of generally corrosive impact that they have on the, the discourse. And do you think that there, obviously there has always been this element on on the left? Your your book expresses about you know, how and at least we look back at at the time as this kind of golden era. That's when kind of true socialism was enacted. Actually, at the time, he had critics to his left saying he was betraying the socialist cause. Um, so there's always been this um, kind of cultural split. But do you feel that the the changes in the economy, that the the difficulty that comes from um, it would be really interesting because actually your book just defend the new Labour government in that actually it worked within the new um, economic framework and a globalised capital and actually um, did put a huge amount of money into um, eradicating poverty, into tackling inequality outside of the top 1%. So outside of that, you know, the, the huge wealth that's very difficult to tackle, there was a lot of progressive good. 
But do you think those those changes in the economy in that at the moment lots of people are struggling, particularly if you are a younger Corbynite, the political economic environment is quite unfair. If you don't own a home, for example, um, and then you see a just extreme wealth, and your book touches on this, so actually there is not only is there unprecedented global wealth at, at the moment at the top, but we have access to it. You know, there's media, there's social media, we see it, and that sense that of alienation, uh, that there is this elite out there, um, which we can we can kind of all see. You know, there are kind of um, there is a kind of extremely wealthy elite. I just um, the extent of their power, I think, is very much over overstated. Um, but do you think those kind of economic changes have led to a growth or growth in populism? Do you think that actually this left populism has grown in the last 10, 20 years? And what do you think are the causes behind that? And yeah. fundamentally, do you think, do you see it changing at all? Do you see your book persuading the masses that actually we should be a bit nicer to each other and understand that politics is a messy business with people mostly just trying to do their best? Yeah, the I, I certainly think that um very yeah the, the the very extreme wealth inequality uh is a big factor here and it's the problem is it's a very difficult problem to solve multi multilaterally i think because you need to cover lots of other countries and um to address things like uh wealth you know, taxing wealth, you need to really do it on a kind of international, more international basis. I don't think you can do it using solely domestic levers. Um, that, uh, and I think, yeah, there is a real mismatch between if you're a young person in the idea of even renting is incredibly expensive. If you're living in London or whatever it is, and, and you're a, a series of blows to young people ranging from um, general government cuts during the, the 2010s through to, you know, the rise of things like unpaid internships through to the state of the housing market and very frustrating situation. And I've, I've been in that, that all of those situations myself and continue to be, you know, presenting people with the the technocratic explanation of actually this is, is really hard to solve regional inequality and the dominance of London, or it's really hard to solve uh, the global elites without being very, very cautious and touchy-feely is, uh, you know, softly, softly is there is a real mismatch between between that. So, um, yeah, I'd agree with you. And I stress the book isn't looking to present all the answers or to suggest that um, simply removing these myths is the the way to, you know, if you if you strip out all three of these myths do you suddenly have a political utopia do you suddenly have all of the answers no you don't really but these these myths are ultimately their cul-de-sacs or red herrings or whatever you want to call it wild wild goose chases that get you away from where the true constructive solutions lie 
I think, for example, the puppet master idea that the EU is a, a capitalist club, club um, sort of where which allows undemocratic neoliberal fat cats to control uh, control people is a, a total red, which is the sort of idea that was put about by a certain kind of Ken Loach strand of Corbynist, but Corbynism is a total red herring in that it, um, in fact, greater European cooperation and integration is, in my view, one of the best chances of us removing offshore wealth, creating more social socially progressive policies when it comes to wealth inequality, when it comes to regional inequality, for example. So that's just one small example of how these myths lead us down completely the wrong pathway where they say, oh my God, we need to stop all uh, international cooperation and actually international cooperation is the best chance of addressing these things. Um, and that's just a little example, but yeah, to say to emphasize, I don't, I don't think the answers are easy, but and I don't think getting rid of the myths solves all the problems. But I do think it it means you're a little bit closer to to being able to address them. Yeah, no, I think your book kind of expresses that idea very well. It's it's look, this this book doesn't have all the answers, but it does very thoroughly explain how these myths and bring you to a dead end and i would say kind of a dead end and often quite authoritarian thinking because you get frustrated by the dead end and then you'll look for the who's the new dark knight who is the new puppet master and it can eventually take you to quite a dark place that's that's my personal opinion that's my that would be my fear um i I'm going to, well, I have already kind of shared your book around to those individuals who I think are maybe can flirt with the populist left who, but I think have an open mindedness. Uh, And I do also think that um, the mess, also kind of one of the key messages in this book about understanding the complexity of individuals and the complexity of their motivations as well which is a point that we haven't usually touched on is really important for just improving political discourse and using yes. now of division and hostility which often i think actually as again prevents us from having important discussions on the correct policy to solve some of the grave issues that we face um yeah. Chris, thank you so much for coming on this podcast i'm sure we'll be in touch and play some footy together in the in the feed um but yeah all the best and um keep spreading the word about your book i will that's <laughs> it pleasure thank you very much for having me Leo. yeah speak soon all the best thank you for listening to this episode of the stepping out of line podcast if you'd like to support the podcast listen without the adverts and hear bonus episodes sign up to our patreon at www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. That's www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. And to find out more about what Leo's getting up to, then check out his Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. And if you want to find out more about Chris and his book, make sure to check out his Twitter at Warring Fictions. That's at Warring Fictions. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you listen to the next one.